Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. Kim Hein is the youngest of four daughters of Petronella Felicorp and Gert Hein. Both her parents came from the small village in the Netherlands. Her mother's family lived in the west of the country, where, I'm sorry, where her grandfather and uncles were involved in the Dutch resistance. They paid a heavy price for their role in fighting Nazi Germany. It was a topic her family did not speak much of, and only much later did she put the pieces together. Kim is currently a professor of mining geology at the School of Geosciences at Wits University, and I'm so pleased that she came in to tell her family's story. Kim, welcome, and thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm quite honored, actually. It's a story that needs to be told, and I've read a little bit of what you wrote, and I must tell you I was in tears just about throughout, but even though it was quite short. Kim, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Australia, and you never knew much about your family history until you made a historic visit to Holland in 1985. Tell yes, me about that trip. Yes, that's correct. Um, emigrating as uh, 10 shilling migrants to Australia post Second World War um, was a challenge for the family. Of course, Europe was in a total state of mess and people just had to leave. People were starving, there was no work and so on. So my family took the decision to move to Australia and uh, in part I grew up in the Netherlands but the remainder in Australia. And my mother decided in 1985 she was getting older and she thought if I don't go soon to the Netherlands and see my brothers and sisters once again, um, it would be too late that she would pass on and never see them. So she decided to do that and I said I'm coming with. And uh, we all went actually to the Netherlands to meet family for the first time to reconnect to reconcile in some cases where things had fallen out because I understood later there was animosity about her actually leaving that that that's what the family didn't want um, so yeah it was a big journey. How old were you at the time? Well I was growing up and I, I was married at the time uh, um, and so we went as I think I was probably in my 30s or something by then. So meeting my cousins for the first time, although I'd communicated with them, was quite extraordinary. I think the being even at the airport, landing in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, they didn't recognize my mother because she'd aged so terribly. Um, and they recognized me because I, I look exactly like my cousins. <laughs> so they said, that's the family. What age were you? Were you ever, were you born in Holland? Or I was were you born, born in, in the Australia? Netherlands. I'm a Dutch citizen. I, although I have a dual citizenship, I haven't been back to, um, Australia for 20 oh, something years. So, so how, and you've still got a bit of an Australian accent. That's where I learned English. Ah. So. <laughs> It's days. <laughs> um, and how, how old were you when you left Holland? I was very young. Uh, we, we actually emigrated on a ship in those days, so through the port of Aden in, um, and then passing through to Perth and then eventually Melbourne and then catching the train. So arriving in 
effectively an immigrant's camp outside of the city of Adelaide in Australia, and I, I was probably about five, five and a half. So you have very few memories of I have Holland. some vague memories that have come back since I went back to the Netherlands. I'd be at a location, I'd say, I've been here before. And my sister, who's in the Netherlands, would say, you can't possibly remember this. And I would describe the memory and she'd say, that's exactly it. So wow. I think there's a repository of knowledge from the past that, that travels with you anyway. Um, so I was quite young. So coming back in 1985 to meet everybody was a connection, even language-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my Dutch that I learned as a child came from my parents, particularly my mother. Um, but then being in the Netherlands with family and hearing Dutch spoken, within four weeks I was fluent again in, the wow. ne- in Dutch. So it kind of stays with you, doesn't it? It's, it's incredible. In, I mean, children's minds actually are incredible because yeah. they, they have the ability to take in so much. Yeah. Kim, so you went back. You were yeah. an adult you're already an, an adult, adult yeah. and you didn't really know much about your family history because no one was talking. Absolutely nothing, and that was a that was a discovery in itself. I never knew that war survivors don't like speaking about the war. It brings back a complexity and layer upon layer of emotional feelings, but sadnesses and strangely comic events as well. But basically, things are not spoken. But what I noticed most commonly was sentences would just kind of fade away and people would stare off somewhere like they were reliving an experience and a lot of hand-wringing. You know, the the wrenching of the Mm -hmm. fingers and the hands was, was a common Occurrence, And I thought there's obviously a lot here that I need to know. And I questioned my cousins, first of all, thinking naively that they knew everything. And they knew absolutely nothing. It was a real shock. And I have a huge family in the Netherlands on my mother's side. So she was one nobody of s- knew anything. And she was one of seven, seven children. children. And, you know, they've got children and children. And so this extended family and nobody, nobody knew. knew anything. It was very hard. I, we find it also with Holocaust survivors that for many years they just cannot talk. They and cannot then speak about it. For some, they realize now or never and then they start speaking. But what was it in your family that made some of your uncles speak? I think it was my insistence, first of all, and, and forcefulness in saying, I want to know. I want to know what happened, largely because, you, you, you know, my knowledge of the Second World War is from textbooks. But then I've had a family who's lived through it who are not speaking. And I wanted to hear what the reality was. There were concerns, for example, because we're Aryan by racial descent and and thus and therefore part of Hitler's Nazi establishment. And I I, I wanted to know we weren't, which side were we on? I had to know where were we? Were we on which side? And pushing that all the time got several reactions, um, as I've indicated once before. My uncle Ton, who was very young, um, reacted very aggressively and angry and often swore in Dutch when issues would come up. If there was anything on the television at all, you'd immediately turn the TV off. So you began to see that things were not in a comfortable space and that the reactions against what had happened to my family had been really awful. 
Uh, my uncle Hank, on one particular night, I remember it extremely well. He slowly began to talk as my uncle Tom walked out and had a cigarette. It was very cold. He was it was a minus temperature. And he went outside to smoke a cigarette. He didn't want to discuss it. But slowly the stories began. And, and each had a very sad story of their own It to was tell. very deep. I think uh, the reactions, the first year, you know, in, during that time period as well, we also visited places that were part of their collective memory from that time period. So I almost went on a tour as well to see what they had had gone through. Did and you it, tour alone or with one of your family no, members? No, with the whole family. The we, whole family. We, it, it was a collective. Uh, when when we could, we all went together. Where they played as children, where, you know, the, the historic house is still there. They described it exactly how it used to be. Mm. Even so far as my Uncle Ton had, it was, it was uh, you know, the Netherlands uh, is a low-lying country. And um, each low-lying area is bordered by at least three dikes. And the house was situated just at the lower point of between the first and the second dike. And the story is that my Uncle Tom would ride his bicycle and rode it too fast off the dike and broke down the toilet because he rode into the toilet. (laughs) So there was the comic side of it at at one side as well. But the point that at which it all changed. The stories changed into reality when they demonstrated what happened. So my mother standing on the dike and turning eastward to the direction of Rotterdam and waving her hand through the air and saying the sky glowed for three nights as they bombed the city flat. And, you know, it's, it still sends a chill up my spine because for her that was memory. And my uncle, the oldest uncle, recalling that he left not long after Uncle Hank and saying he, he, he disappeared into the forest along, which is pretty much gone now, to escape into Belgium to join the resistance movement. And he was so young, he was 15, barely 16 years old, and yet he made that instant life decision to exit as fast as possible because... You know, Nazi, Nazi Germany crossed the border and within a week they had bombed the city of Rotterdam flat and were bombing Amsterdam before the Netherlands capitulated and the monarchy fled to, to Europe. So my family was very much in that part. Your, your uncle Henk. Yes. You seem to have a special connection I with do. him. He, <laughs> I, I, he, well, besides the fact that um, I feel very close to him anyway. He has an, a deep gentle, well, he's passed on now, but he had a deep gentleness and, but a very much a man's man and, and very much, um, a very sincere person, quiet spoken, very considered. Um, a tall man with, with uh, shocking white gray hair that he always pushed back. But a, a tremendous gentleness. Um, with children and with women. Uh, but his stories were really quite deep and led me to n- not doubt for a minute that during the war he had had to kill people in order to survive. And he was a difficult man to catch. He was apparently quite notorious. Um, they were wanting to catch him because he was 
blowing out planes that were landing with su- supplies, obviously not by himself because mm. it was normally the So he was part of the an- he was underground part of movement. the Belgian resistance part movement. Part of the Belgian resistance yeah. movement. Because he fled the Netherlands uh, to go to Belgium. But I remember him telling me little stories in the times that they, they were there, things, for example, um, that uh, a plane had landed in a field and by the time the pilot could even get out, they had rushed to it and disabled the plane and dispatched the pilot and, and whoever else was there and stole all the goods and then ran off and left it and blew up the plane. He he was sometimes quite detailed at how the plane would even park or... I remember he used to say to me as well, they often uh, interfered with the railway network, which was in southern Belgium. So he was moving around quite a bit, um, interfering with the, with the um, supplies to the, the front on the one hand, but on the other hand also interfering largely with the transport of Belgium and French Jews to uh, um, extermination camps. So they would actually damage that and try to get people out. Mm. The details of that, I always remember him saying in the Dutch, it was the armor Yoda, mm. the, the, the poor Jews, the helpless Jews. But he also recounted to me that many they couldn't help because they were already so brutalized by the time that they were in the transports that they were they just couldn't move. They'd been starved or beaten or tortured or mm. pretty much terminal in, in, in the stage. It always struck me as odd why 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 Nazi Germany would even bother to transport people to Germany to exterminate them. It was quite bizarre, really. Um, so he had that kind of life and a very secret life. The only thing that I don't know about is how he got back to the Netherlands because he, he stayed in Belgium right up to the end of the war. So at some point he must have either been arrested or joined... <laughs> the Allied uh, uh, march across uh, France into Belgium through the Ardennes and so on. Your grandfather, Ari, Ari Hine, yeah. he, 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 he paid a very high cost. Indeed. He paid his life Indeed. for his role. Do you want to yes. share that story? Um, my, my grandfather, Ari Felokop, was um, also a very big man on uh, his size, but he was also... Uh, when I lose my temper, they, they say to me, I have his temper. I have the Felicorp temper. Um, he was um, taken, as so many Dutch people were, because we're the similar racial group as the, as the Nazi Germans were. Um, we were ta- they were taken into what's called Arbeidseinsatz, which was forced labor. Um, in other words, you were conscripted into labor and if, to help the war, German war effort. And if you failed to do that, you were arrested, beaten, put in prison or concentration camp. Um, he had agreed to that and he was working in Germany. Um, the story is that he's working as a wireless operator, which he, he did as a hobby because his trade was actually carpentry and, and shipbuilding. Um, uh, but my aunt uh, Nelcha had uh, had an unfortunate accident with a with a bus, and he had a ten day pass to return to the town where he was to help with the family, and he never returned. So he was consequently arrested um, and taken to Oranjeslos, which is actually a tower that sits on the dike itself and pumps water from the lowland up to the next level and, and subsequently into the Mass River. And there they had 
a garrison of, of soldiers. And he was arrested and taken to there and uh, beaten up very badly because apparently he had a fight with a soldier, which is not unsurprising because he had that personality. Um, the, the details of the story is was originally taken to Schäfeninger, which is where the International Criminal Court is actually at the moment, mm. the building for the International Criminal mm. Court, and eventually to the city of Amersfoort, which is almost in the middle of the Netherlands, to the Amersfoort concentration camp. From there, he was very badly treated. We do know that he was visited by my grandmother at that stage and my mother, and he was starving and dying. And then he was transported, probably because he was a very difficult person, to the island of Wangeroch, which is off the coast of Germany, as slave labor. And I think that's the part of the story that most people are not aware of, is that many people who refuse to cooperate with Nazi oppression were arrested and became slaves or were exterminated or so on. And my uncle became a slave laborer. And right up almost to the end of the war, he was held as a captive, as a slave labourer, working on the island of Wangeroch, which was a major fortress that protected the port of Wilhelmshaven, which was the main port for on that part of, of Germany for, for the German fleet. Mm. Um, he helped build the battlements there, which were 10 days before the end of the war, completely flattened by British bombers. Mm -hmm. um, he worked with Poles, with... Uh, um, uh, um, there was Dutch, Polish, most of the Germanic people mm -hmm. who were arrested who refused to cooperate ended up one way or another working on those kind of places. So he died. And the only thing that is a discrepancy is he, he died there... Um, during the British bombing, but the records actually show that he was a slave labourer, Osnabrück, and Osnabrück is, uh, was a concentration camp mm. in Germany and was also an extermination camp. So we're not sure whether he, which way he died, <laughs> whether he died actually on the island, but he was definitely there, or whether he actually was being transported for extermination mm. at that stage. So many... Many Dutch people who resisted were basically also dispatched. Right. Uh, can, can, I, I wish we had more time to learn more because I know you eventually did piece together little bits yeah. of Uncle Twin's yeah. life, that even though you can understand why he was so angry and want to speak. I'm hoping you're going to put this in a story. I know my colleague is going to be in touch with you okay. to, for you to do so. <laughs> that would but be very nice. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with me it's 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 these are the important stories that need to be told and yeah. uh, it, it's amazing how much still continues to come out you think you know what you know and that's all and then suddenly there's a little gem hidden somewhere so i kind of i wish you and your family luck in finding out more of the pieces but thank you yeah. so much for coming in thank you for inviting me